0: who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. This is God's word to us. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to your word, we we confess our need for your supernatural work in and through this time that you would open our ears and give us hearts that are attentive that will listen to what you have to say to us. Help us, Lord, we pray in this time. Help us to hear, help us to learn and to grow and apply, but most of all, help us to see Jesus high and lifted up as our Savior and Redeemer, that we may glory in Him today. We pray in His matchless name, amen. Please be seated. We looked at Smyrna last week, and as you may remember, Smyrna, modern-day Turkey, uh, directly across from Athens, Greece, just east across the Aegean Sea. Pergamum is just north of there, and this was one of the cities that was conquered by the Romans as they expanded their world empire. They kind of started off in Asia here in Pergamum. They they made it their capital, in a sense. They established their administrative headquarters here, and as a result, they placed a proconsul or a regional ruler in this area, and all that goes with that, the military, the bureaucracy, Uh, the buildings, the government infrastructure, everything that you might imagine. The proconsul had the power of the sword. And as emperor worship grew in this time, so did his use of the sword against Christians. One writer suggests if Ephesus was the New York City of Asia, then Pergamum was the Washington, D.C. of that area. In Pergamum were a number of temples. There was a big one to Zeus. There was another one to Asclepius, who was the god of healing. Uh, His symbol was the serpent. Uh, You might recognize we still kind of follow that pattern today. A lot of medical emblems have the serpent in it, or if you get behind an ambulance, you'll see the serpent wrapped around the stick. That's where all that started. There were a number of sites to worship to Caesar Uh, probably fewer at this time, but they were growing. This was going to be a continued problem, and so Jesus is preparing them. The pagan practices that were happening were only going to increase. And with these pagan practices, all that went with it, including the sexual immorality that was practiced in the temples. And so the challenges that believers faced in Pergamum were really countless. They were kind of faced on all sides. There was the idolatry uh, of the false gods that were there. There was the idolatry of politics that were present there in the city, the temptations that prevailed. The allurement of compromise for believers here in Pergamum was really beyond description, except to say that it just sounds a lot like our own day, doesn't it? False gods, idolatry of politics, all kinds of temptation. It's not so far away from our own day, and we can relate to people who are allured into compromise. In addition to the many temples, Pergamum boasted one of the ancient world's greatest libraries. There had been uh, an an embargo uh, in ancient times before this time where they were unable to get in this region the papyrus leaves from Egypt that were used to make paper. And so they became innovative and they developed a new way of writing on animal skins and turning them into scrolls so that the name Pergamum comes from the word, the same word that we get our English word, parchment. And so there's this correlation to this. And and at the height of its existence, this library boasted over 200,000 scrolls. So big, big library there. So all of these things together, when Jesus sends his message to the church, when he mentions his sharp two-edged sword and the sword of my mouth, along with the idols, the sexual immorality, the false teaching, he calls all of these things out. All of these items were things that the people could connect with, could relate to there. You see, the church needed to fear the judgment of Christ's sword, not the sword of the proconsul. They needed the healing of his wounds, not the false promises of the healing god, Asclepius. The believers were to submit their lives to the word of God, not to the many words of man contained in all the scrolls of their library. And they were to confess Christ as Lord instead of compromising to the culture that demanded they proclaim that Caesar was Lord. You see, the address that Jesus gives to the church at Pergamum was one that resonated with their lives in very meaningful ways. These are all things that if you just read through the book of Revelation and and don't look at some of the history, we miss a lot, don't we? We miss some of the the, the points and the, the nuances, just like we saw in the previous two addresses. And so beginning in verse 12, we see Jesus starts and identifies Himself as Him who has the sharp, two-edged sword. This is a reference back to Revelation chapter 1, where when John sees the vision of Jesus, he sees Jesus as having a sharp, two-edged sword come from His mouth, Revelation 1.16. And the sword is certainly an image that points to the power of His Word. It's coming from His mouth. But in this case, it's particularly pointing to the power of, the word, of His word of judgment in that He is coming with really two, two warnings. There's one threat of judgment against the false teachers that's very clearly stated in verse 16. But there's also in the warning to the church that if they do not repent, He's coming to discipline them, to correct them. There's also implied in that this judgment that's going to come to the church. The Christians of Pergamum were already aware of the threat of the sword. They had already experienced this. and Tepas had suffered martyrdom. This wasn't this far-off idea like it is for many of us where we hear of persecution. They knew it intimately. They had experienced it. They had lost one of their own. But as Jesus warned in Matthew 10, 28, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. See, We looked at this last week. Believers don't need to fear the first death because we know we will not face the second death. For those who are in Christ, we no longer fear death. But Jesus went on to say in Matthew 10, Fear not, therefore you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. In other words, the warning here is that they would not compromise, that they would not be lured into the denial of Jesus, not just with their words, but through the compromise of their actions, that they would give in to what the culture was doing around them and just become kind of numb to what was happening and be lured into following the patterns of the world and thus deny Jesus in their lives, in the way that they're living, falling into the traps of sinful living. And this is what the false teachers were doing. We'll look at that more in a minute. But as Jesus does, he starts off with words of encouragement. In verse 13, he says, what are becoming now familiar words to us, I know, right? Jesus, the one who walks among the lampstands, who is present with his church, he knows the hardships that we face. He knows what we endure. He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. You know, to have your city described this way as uh, where Satan's throne is or where Satan's dwell, dwells is, is kind of a sobering statement. Pergamum had become a stronghold for the evil one through the many temples, the capital uh, emperor worship that was taking place there, the prominence of the false teachers leading believers astray. Satan seems to have the upper hand. And this is no more clearly evidenced than in the death of Antipas. Does any of this resonate with us? Do we feel like the culture that surrounds us is an enemy? Does it seem like Satan is gaining strength as the ruler of this world? You see, while our eyes may see such evidences, Jesus reminds the believers there and us today that he walks among us, that he is present, that he is ruling and reigning, that he is our great high priest. Whoever lives and pleads for us, He made an end of all our sin. He is the perfect, spotless, risen Lamb. And while we are aware of what is happening around the world, we are not to become so fixated on these events as to believe that we are without hope. Revelation is a book of hope. It's one of the reasons why we're in it now, because we need hope. It's so easy To get fixated on everything that's happening and forget what is true and right. Because our eyes tell us all these bad things are happening. All these bad things are happening. We're going to lose hold of what we have. And Jesus is saying to us, no. No, I hold you in the palm of my hand. Yes, Antipas had had faced the first death. But we know that he was welcomed by his great unchangeable I am, the king of glory and of grace. And would not be destroyed by the second death. His life was hidden in Christ. And so we must keep our eyes fixed on Christ even when the events of this world seem overwhelming. Because of who Christ is and all that he has accomplished, the believers there are praised for having held to his name. They did not deny the faith. And so there's this sense of, it isn't that they're, they're falling apart. They've got their, their their commitment there to Christ is clear. He's praising them for this. He's encouraging them in this. When we see our loved ones suffer or when we suffer ourselves, do we despair? Do we lose sight of all that is ours when we we feel like our life is slipping away? I mean, this is a real struggle. It's a temptation to look at our circumstances and kind of base our idea of who God is and and our standing before Him by how our life is going at any given moment. If we're honest, this is kind of how we function. Things aren't going well. Is God mad at me? Is God trying to get me? Jesus is saying to us, hold fast because I have you in the palm of my hand. I'm not changing the same yesterday, today, and forever. My plans are not thwarted by anything that's happening in this life. After he encourages them, he then says, I have a few things against you in verse 14. The words of correction here are directed to the church. It's not at the false teachers. He mentions the false teachers. He says he's going to come and there will be judgment on these false teachers for what they're doing in verse 16. But there is a warning here for the church they weren't on guard, they had become compromised. They had been infiltrated by wolves. If you remember, when Paul left the church at Ephesus in our study in Acts, he said to the elders there, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. The church at Pergamum had let their guard down. They failed to correct. They failed to discipline when they identified those things. And so to point out their error, Jesus recalls this Old Testament account of Balak and Balaam. It's in Numbers 25 and 31. We won't take time to go back and read that. I do want to say this, though, at, at, just at the outset. Jesus is implying here that the people know their Bibles. He doesn't say, let me tell you the story of Balaam and then relate it to the, the Nicolaitans. He just refers to it because he knows the believers there know their Bible. We are to know God's word. The gist of the story is Balaam first attempted to bring down curses uh, on the Israelites by the order of the king uh, of Moab, Balak, and this didn't work. And so he switched tactics and he attempted to lure the Israelite men into idolatry through sexual immorality by sending these Midianite women in among them to seduce them. And that did work, unfortunately, and God judged his people. He took out 24,000 through a plague. So this is what Jesus is referencing here. He's warning them, comparing what Balaam did to what the Nicolaitans are doing now. Now, we're not given the details. And if you're like me, you you want details. Like, what what were they saying? You know, what were they telling them? Well, it's clear that when we, we look at the story from the Old Testament, when we think of the context of the city of Pergamum and all that was happening there, that we can see that the Nicolaitans were at least leading the people into compromise. They were teaching things that were, uh, in a sense, tolerating the views of this world, where the the, the worldly practices were beginning to become patterns of life for the Christians there. We may not be able to relate to temples or fertility rites, but we can certainly understand how culture creeps in to the church How many examples do we see regularly of where we see uh, churches begin to change and begin not only accepting what the Bible calls sin, but they quickly come to promote what the Bible calls sin. We have to be on guard against tolerating false teaching, false teachers. We have to understand that it doesn't always come from without. We have to be on guard that it doesn't come from within, as we see in Ephesus and when it does happen, it is often because believers are being compromised by the things they're bringing into their lives. There's a number of things we could consider, but entertainment's one that is, is at least for me, that's an area that uh, I'm easily influenced by. And I think the reason we're easily influenced by entertainment is because we let our guard down. We want to be entertained, right? We want to just relax. We want to chill. And there's a certain influence that when we put these ideas and thoughts into our head over and over and over again, we become influenced by them. What do you read? What do you watch? What are you listening to? What are you spending your time taking in? Peggy Noonan is known for writing, What you applaud, you encourage. And watch out what you celebrate. What you applaud, you encourage. And watch out what you celebrate. That progression doesn't just happen in the realm of entertainment. It happens in the realm of all ideas. And churches that tolerate something soon often come to applaud those very things. And then when it goes on long enough, they they come to the point of celebrating it. And church history tells us this story over and over again of this pattern. We have to be on guard. We have to stand up for truth. But let me say this about Compromise. I think very few among us today are sitting in our chairs thinking, "I want to compromise. I really want to. I, that's what I want to do." Most of us don't. We know better. I mean, it's really not rocket science to say, "Yeah, we shouldn't compromise." I mean, even unbelievers function this way. We we function this way more than we think we do. If you think of some of the secular ideas, "Be true to yourself." All right, what is that saying? I mean, yeah, your standard isn't very much because it's you and you change and it's different every day and and so forth. But that's a standard, and there are people who live their lives that way. Frank Sinatra I did it my way, right? You know, There's, that's a, that's a way of it's a worldview, it's a way of living. There's a sense of I'm not compromising to what other people tell me to do. I'm doing it my way. That's that's a, in a sense trying to not compromise. Very few people think I believe this way, but I'm going to live. Differently according to what I believe or think. I mean in a very practical way, we pull out here on US one and we look to the left and there are cars coming and we look to the right and there are cars coming. We don't say, I see cars coming, but I'm gonna believe like there are no cars coming and pull out because we understand there are consequences to that. We we function in a world with of consequences. And so we're not trying to live in a way that compromises uh, or where we compromise. We, we function according to truth more than we realize or more than we acknowledge, even in a world that says there is no truth. If you think of another way that the word compromised is used, it can often mean that something has become unreliable. If a technician comes to your home and says your gas line is compromised, what are you going to do? You're going to have it turned off until it can be repaired because you don't want your house to blow up, right? I mean, you don't just say, eh, I'll get to that next month. That's kind of a serious thing. You know, if if the bank calls and says your credit card has been compromised, you shut it down, close the account, because you don't want more fraud to occur on your account. What I'm saying is that when it comes to compromise, I don't think the message that we need to simply hear is stop it. And unfortunately, that's often as far as we go. We all know we need to stop it. We all know we're not to walk in sin, to continue in sin. We're, we know we're not to live compromised lives in the same way that we know we don't leave the compromised gas line unfixed. We need something more. And that's exactly what Jesus gives us here. He says to the church, therefore, repent. And yes, stopping is a part of repentance. Repentance doesn't not include stopping. Stopping is maybe the first step in that, in that process, but it isn't just a step in the sense that you can half-repent. Repentance is not just stopping. Repentance is st- stopping. It's turning from sin, but it's turning to Christ in faith. We must turn to our Savior, and this is so important for us to understand. So often we treat sin as something that we have to cease in our own strength, in our own power, but repenting is not just stopping, it is turning to our Savior. Yes, we need Jesus savingly, and we often think of that in our past, but we also need Him today, now, every moment. We need His power, we need His nourishment, we need His wisdom, we need His comfort in this life. And this is the promise that He gives us then in verse 17. Before we look at that promise, I want to mention a couple of the things about Verse 16, Jesus says if they don't repent, he's coming in judgment. What does that mean? Uh, Some think that's the second coming, but I I don't think that's the case because Pergamum's not there anymore, so the church is not there anymore. I don't think this is his return uh, at the second coming. Um, I think this is a coming in judgment. It's not that Jesus is absent. He's, He's not absent from the church in Pergamum that he has to come and show up. But it's rather his description of his coming to judge them if they don't repent. Jesus is with us. He walks among the lampstands. He will never leave us or forsake us. Lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. But what he is saying here is that when you stray and when you wander, I am the good shepherd and I'm not going to leave you. I'm going to come and I'm going to come in correction. It's a warning. Correction's not fun. Who likes to be disciplined, right? None of us like that. But Jesus loves us too much. And so he's saying to the church, I will come in discipline. I will come in correction to, with my staff, lovingly bring you back on the path. The discipline is for his children. It's for his own. But the warring of his judgment is for or against the false teachers. They would not be left to ravage the flock forever. They would be held to account because no one can destroy Christ's church. Even when churches close their doors, the remnant is scattered. Christ's church, he says, my church, will it'll prevail. It'll keep going. Nothing, nothing not, not even the gates of hell will be able to prevail against it. His church will continue. Nothing can separate us from our Savior. Now, coming back to verse 17, this is where we see the promise. And this week's promises are very interesting. They're kind of mysterious to us when we read them. There's this hidden manna. Sounds a little bit like Indiana Jones stuff along with the white stone with a new name written on it. What are these things? Well, manna, as you probably remember from Old Testament Sunday school, is this miraculous bread-like food that God provided to his children in the wilderness to feed them. And it was a daily provision, right? They had to look to God in faith to receive this daily. At the end of the day, it rotted, right? It was no good for the next day. They couldn't save it. And so they were looking to God, trusting him. They, They didn't see where it came from. It, it came down from heaven, right? They didn't know that God was the source, but there was no machine in the sky. There was no airplane that came over and dropped it over, and they saw they, it was just it was from God. There was a sense of mystery to it. Now, there is a legend that exists in a in one of the Maccabees. I can't remember if it was first or second, but and it's an extra biblical book, non biblical uh, uh, book, that describes Jeremiah taking the Ark of the Covenant and hiding the manna. There was manna kept in there. In the ark and, and sending it away before they went into exile to preserve it. And there were those who believed that when the Messiah came, he would bring back the ark and with it this hidden manna. I, I don't think, though, that this is the explanation that best fits this passage. Instead, I think we need to think of John 6 35, where we see Jesus saying to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Note what is happening there. People who are physically standing before Jesus, who see him with their own eyes and yet do not know. They don't believe. They remain closed in their in their sight their sight remains closed he is the hidden manna the bread of life and he gives it to all that the father has given him he says this doctrine of election is one that is great a great comfort to us as believers especially uh, when we face suffering to know that our lives are in the hands of one who holds us who will never let anything or anyone pluck us from his hand the one who will never compromise But not only are we securely saved, he intercedes for us moment by moment, pleading our case as our mediator because he never compromises. We are safe no matter what we face in this life, no matter what happens in the world, no matter what happens to any of us. And not only are we safe in his hand, he promises to care for us each and every day, just as the manna was the daily bread from heaven, its origin unseen, so he meets each of our daily needs himself. The white stone maybe is a little bit more mysterious. Stones were used in numerous ways. One of the most prominent that a lot of people like to talk about in this case was stones were given as a symbol of acquittal. A white stone was given as a symbol of acquittal. A dark stone was given as a symbol of guilt. And of course, we understand that in Christ, we have been given the judgment of not guilty, According to his death for us. But we see this name that's written on the stone. I think the name is something that we need to consider more than just the stone itself. It's a new name that no one knows except for the one who sees it. Sounds like a riddle, doesn't it? It is mysterious, but when we look back to Isaiah 62.2, we read of a promise that states, And you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. And you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. When we look back to Isaiah 62, when we look forward to Revelation 14, 1, and see all believers standing with the Lamb with the the Father's name written on their foreheads, we see that only those who Christ has made His own through faith know His name written on them. It is His name that we will fear and glorify That's what the Song of the Lamb says in Revelation 15. It is the name of Jesus that is our new name. We are Christians. We are Christ followers. We are the bride of Christ. He has given us His name. Yes, our name is graven on His hands and written on His heart, but His name is ascribed on our forehead. His name that God has bestowed on Him. The name that is above every name, at which every knee will bow and tongue confess that He is Lord. Not Caesar, not a president, not a big tech CEO or a Nobel Prize winning scientist or some other power person. It is Jesus alone who is Lord of all and one day every tongue will acknowledge that. It is his name that is written on you who are trusting him alone. And because he is faithful, the same yesterday, today and forever, he never compromises. You see, I could stop and say, don't compromise let's go, (laughs) right? I could say you shouldn't compromise or you shouldn't have compromised and heap on the guilt and shame. I think that's what we so often get accustomed to. We all know we are not to compromise. What we all desperately need to hear, to know and believe is that we have a high priest the risen Lamb of God, our perfect spotless righteousness. He is the great unchangeable I Am, and we are in Him, and His name is written on us. And we cannot face the second death because of what He has done. Our lives are hidden with Christ on high. We need to look and see, to look and live as we behold our Savior who never compromises. And while we know that we shouldn't compromise... We all know that we have and we all know that we will. We're unreliable. We can't save ourselves. We're going to fail. We need the one who has never compromised and will never compromise and to fix our eyes on Him in every moment. Look, behold, and see our Savior, our strong and perfect plea. He stands that you and I may not be put asunder. And so remember this, when Satan tempts you to despair and he reminds you of your guilt, look to Jesus and see Him there who made an end of all of our sin. And because He died, our Father now looks on us and sees the perfect righteousness credited to us. He is our hope in the face of persecution, in the face of a declining culture, in the face of suffering, and even if we face martyrdom. He is the bread of life. He will nourish us to the end. His name is inscribed on us and we are safe. Look to him, trust in him, hold fast to his name and rest in the uncompromising grasp of his grace and love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know we have compromised and we know we will again. And so help us not to look to ourselves, to our own abilities, to our own performance. Would you lift our eyes up to see Christ? our perfect risen lamb, who has never compromised and never will, who holds us, who walks among us, who has promised never to leave us or forsake us. Keep our eyes fixed on Jesus when we, when we get the bad news, when we suffer physically, when we are brokenhearted from the wounds of a friend or a loved one, when we're weighed down, from financial need or other things that we experience in this life that can so be so, such a burden. Lord, would you cause us to look up and see Christ, that our life is hidden with Him, so that we would not despair. Lord, may we be on guard against false teaching. May we be on guard against uh, influence that would lead us astray to take on the patterns of this world. But may we never be tempted to do so in our own strength. May we look with a solid face, faith fixed on Christ. We would trust Him as our strength, as our wisdom, as our source of power to, to stand in the face of temptation. And Lord, then when we do fail, to know that all of our sins are forgiven in Him. Lord, what a joy it is to know that we are cleansed from all unrighteousness. Would you refresh in us these truths today that we may walk and live trusting in the one who never compromises. It's in his name that we pray.